is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Catherine Eastman. August 2006. Dream Days by Kenneth Graham. 2. Dies Irae. Those memorable days that move in procession, their heads just out of the mist of years long dead, the most of them are full-eyed as the dandelion that from dawn to shade has steeped itself in sunlight. Here and there in their ranks, however, moves a forlorn one who is blind, blind in the sense of the dulled window-pane on which the pelting raindrops have mingled and run down, obscuring sunshine and the circling birds, happy fields, and storied garden, blind with the spatter of a misery uncomprehended, unanalyzed, only felt as something corporeal in its buffeting effects. Martha began it, and yet Martha was not really to blame. Indeed, that was half the trouble of it. No solid person stood full in view to be blamed and to make atonement. There was only a wretched, impalpable condition to deal with. Breakfast was just over. The sun was summoning us, imperious as a herald, with clamor of trumpet. I ran upstairs to her, with a broken bootlace in my hand, and there she was, crying in a corner, her head in her apron. Nothing could be got from her but the same dismal succession of sobs that would not have done, that struck and hurt like a physical beating. And meanwhile the sun was getting impatient, and I wanted my bootlace. Inquiry below stairs revealed the cause. Martha's brother was dead, it seemed, her sailor brother, Billy, drowned in one of those strange far-off seas it was our dream to navigate one day. We had known Billy well, and appreciated him. When an approaching visit of Billy to his sister had been announced, we had counted the days to it. When his cheery voice was at last heard in the kitchen, and we had descended with shouts, First of all, he had to exhibit his tattooed arms, always a subject for fresh delight and envy and awe. Then he was called upon for tricks, jugglings, and strange, fearful gymnastics. And lastly came yarns, and more yarns, and yarns till bedtime. There had never been any one like Billy in his own particular sphere. And now he was drowned, they said and Martha was miserable, and—and and I couldn't get a new bootlace. They told me that Billy would never come back any more, and I stared out of the window at the sun, which came back right enough every day, and their news conveyed nothing whatever to me. Martha's sorrow hit home a little, but only because the actual sight and sound of it gave me a dull, bad sort of pain low down inside, a pain not to be actually located. Moreover, 
I was still wanting my boot-lace. This was a poor sort of a beginning to a day that, so far as outside conditions went, had promised so well. I rigged up a sort of jury-mast of a boot-lace with a bit of old string, and wandered off to look up the girls, conscious of a jar and a discordance in the scheme of things. The moment I entered the schoolroom, something in the air seemed to tell me that here, too, matters were strained and awry. Selina was staring listlessly out of the window, one foot curled round her leg. When I spoke to her, she jerked a shoulder testily, but did not condescend to the civility of a reply. Charlotte, absolutely unoccupied, sprawled in a chair, and there were signs of sniffles about her, even at that early hour. It was but a trifling matter that had caused all this electricity in the atmosphere, and the girl's manner of taking it seemed to me most unreasonable. Within the last few days, the time had come round for the dispatch of a hamper to Edward at school. Only one hamper a term was permitted him, so its preparation was a sort of blend of revelry and religious ceremony. After the main corpus of the thing had been carefully selected and safely bestowed, the pots of jam, the cake, the sausages, and the apples that filled up the corners so nicely, after the last package had been wedged in, the girls had deposited their own private and personal offerings on the top. I forget their precise nature. Anyhow, they were nothing of any particular practical use to a boy. But they had involved some contrivance and labor, some skimping of pocket-money, and much delightful cloud-building as to the effect on their enraptured recipient. Well... Yesterday there had come a terse acknowledgment from Edward, heartily commending the cakes and the jam, stamping the sausages with the seal of Smith Major's approval, and, finally, hinting that, fortified as he now was, nothing more was necessary but a remittance of five shillings in postage stamps to enable him to face the world armed against every buffet of fate that was all. Never a word or a hint of the personal tributes or of his appreciation of them. To us, to Harold and me, that is, the letter seemed natural and sensible enough. After all, provender was the main thing, and five shillings stood for a complete equipment against the most unexpected turns of luck. The presents were very well in their way, very nice, and so on. But life was a serious matter, and the contest called for cakes and half-crowns to carry it on, not gewgaws and knitted mittens and the like. The girls, however, in their obstinate way, persisted in taking their own view of the slight. Hence it was that I received my second rebuff of the morning. Somewhat disheartened, I made my way downstairs and out into the sunlight, where I found Harold playing conspirators by himself on the gravel. He had dug a small hole in the walk, and had laid an imaginary train of powder thereto. 
and as he sought refuge in the laurels from the inevitable explosion, I heard him murmur, "'My God!' said the Tsar. "'My plans are frustrated!' It seemed an excellent occasion for being a black puma. Harold liked black pumas, on the whole, as well as any animal we were familiar with. So I launched myself on him with the appropriate howl, rolling him over on the gravel. Life may be said to be composed of things that come off, and things that don't come off. This thing, unfortunately, was one of the things that didn't come off. From beneath me I heard a shrill cry of, Oh, it's my sore knee! And Harold wriggled himself free from the puma's clutches, bellowing dismally. Now, I honestly didn't know he had a sore knee, and what's more, he knew I didn't know he had a sore knee. According to boy ethics, therefore, his attitude was wrong, sore knee or not, and no apology was due from me. I made halfway advances, however, suggesting we should lie in ambush by the edge of the pond and cut off the ducks as they waddled down in simple, unsuspecting single file, then hunt them as bisons flying scattered over the vast prairie. A fascinating pursuit this, and strictly illicit. But Harold would have none of my overtures, and retreated to the house wailing with full lungs. Things were getting simply infernal. I struck out blindly for the open country, and even as I made for the gate, a shrill voice from a window bade me keep off the flower beds. When the gate had swung to behind me with a vicious click, I felt better, and after ten minutes along the road, it began to grow on me that some radical change was needed that I was in a blind alley, and that this intolerable state of things must somehow cease. All that I could do I had already done. As well-meaning a fellow as ever stepped was pounding along the road that day, with an exceeding sore heart, one who only wished to live and let live, in touch with his fellows, and appreciating what joys life had to offer. What was wanted now was a complete change of environment. Somewhere in the world, I felt sure, justice and sympathy still resided. There were places called Pampas, for instance, that sounded well, league upon league of grass, with just an occasional wild horse, and not a relation within the horizon. To a bruised spirit, this seemed a sane and a healing sort of existence. There were other pleasant corners, again, where you dived for pearls and stabbed sharks in the stomach with your big knife. No relations would be likely to come interfering with you when thus blissfully occupied. And yet I did not wish, just yet, to have done with relations entirely. They should be made to feel their position first, to see themselves as they really were, and to wish, when it was too late, 
that they had behaved more properly. Of all professions, the army seemed to lend itself the most thoroughly to the scheme. You enlisted, you followed the drum, you marched, fought, and ported arms under strange skies through unrecorded years. At last, at long last, your opportunity would come, when the horrors of war were flickering through the quiet countryside where you were cradled and bred, but where the memory of you had long been dim. Folk would run together, clamorous, palsied with fear, and among the terror-stricken groups would figure certain aunts. What hope is left us? they would ask themselves, save in the clemency of the general, the mysterious, invincible general, of whom men tell such romantic tales. And the army would march in, and the guns would rattle and leap along the village street, and, last of all, you, you, the general, the fabled hero, you would enter on your coal-black charger, your pale set face seamed by an interesting sabre-cut. And then, but every boy has rehearsed this familiar piece a score of times. You are magnanimous in fine, that goes without saying. You have a coal-black horse and a sabre-cut, and you can afford to be very magnanimous. But all the same, you give them a good talking to. This pleasant conceit simply ravished my soul for some twenty minutes, and then the old sense of injury began to well up afresh, and to call for new plasters and soothing syrups. This time, I took refuge in happy thoughts of the sea. The sea was my real sphere, after all. On the sea in especial you could combine distinction with lawlessness, whereas the army seemed to be always weighted by a certain plodding submission to discipline. To be sure, by all accounts, the life was at first a rough one, just then I wanted to suffer keenly. I wanted to be a poor devil of a cabin-boy, kicked, beaten, and sworn at, for a time. Perhaps some hint, some inkling of my sufferings might reach their ears. In due course the sloop or felucca would turn up, it always did, the rackish-looking craft, black of hull, low in the water, and bristling with guns, the jolly Roger flapping overhead, and myself for sole commander. By and by, as usually happened, an East India man would come sailing along full of relations. Not a necessary relation would be missing and the crew should walk the plank, and the captain should dance from his own yard-arm, and then I would take the passengers in hand, that miserable group of well-known figures cowering on the quarter-deck, and then 
and then the same old performance, the air thick with magnanimity. In all the repertory of heroes, none is more truly magnanimous than your pirate chief. When at last I brought myself back from the future to the actual present, I found that these delectable visions had helped me over a longer stretch of road than I had imagined, and I looked around and took my bearings. To the right of me was a long low building of grey stone, new, and yet not smugly so, new, and yet possessing distinction, marked with a character that did not depend on lichen or on crumbling semi-effacement of moulding and mullion. Strangers might have been puzzled to classify it. To me, an explorer from earliest years, the place was familiar enough. Most folk called it the settlement. Others, with quite sufficient conciseness for our neighborhood, spoke of them their fellows up by Halliday's. Others again, with a hint of derision, named them the monks. This last title I supposed to be intended for satire, and knew to be fatuously wrong. I was thoroughly acquainted with monks in books, and well knew the cut of their long frocks, their shaven poles, and their fascinating big dogs with brandy bottles round their necks, incessantly hauling happy travellers out of the snow. The only dog at the settlement was an Irish terrier, and the good fellows who owned him, and were owned by him in common, wore clothes of the most nondescript order, and mostly cultivated side-whiskers. I had wandered up there one day, searching, as usual, for something I never found, and had been taken in by them, and treated as friend and comrade. They had made me free of their ideal little rooms, full of books and pictures, and clean of the anti-macassar taint. They had shown me their chapel, high, hushed, and faintly scented, beautiful, with a strange new beauty, born both of what it had and what it had not, that too familiar dowdiness of common places of worship. They had also fed me in their dining-hall, where a long table stood on trestles plain to view, and all the woodwork was natural, unpainted, healthily scrubbed, and redolent of the forest it came from. I brought away from that visit, and kept by me for many days, a sense of cleanness, of the freshness that pricks the senses, the freshness of cool spring-water, and the large swept spaces of the rooms, the red tiles, and the oaken settles, suggested a comfort that had no connection with padded upholstery. On this particular morning I was in much too unsociable a mind for paying friendly calls. Still, something in the aspect of the place harmonized with my humour, and I worked my way round to the back, where the ground, after affording level enough for a kitchen-garden, broke steeply away. Both the word Gothic and the thing itself were still unknown to me, yet 
doubtless the architecture of the place consistent throughout accounted for its sense of comradeship in my hour of disheartenment as i mused there with the low gray purposeful-looking building before me and thought of my pleasant friends within and what good times they always seemed to be having and how they larked with the irish terrier whose footing was one of a perfect equality i thought of a certain look in their faces as if they had a common purpose and a business and were acting under orders thoroughly recognized and understood i remembered too something that martha had told me about these fellows doin a power o good and other hints i had collected vaguely of renouncements rules self-denials and the like thereupon out of the depths of my morbid soul swam up a new and fascinating idea and at once the career of arms seemed overacted and stale and piracy as a profession flat and unprofitable this then or something like it should be my vocation and my revenge a severer line of business perhaps such as i had read of something that included black bread and a hair shirt there should be vows too irrevocable blood-curdling vows and an iron grating this iron grating was the most necessary feature of all for i intended that on the other side of it my relations should range themselves i mentally ran over the catalogue and saw that the whole gang was present all in their proper places a sad-eyed row combined in tristful appeal we see our error now they would say we were always dull dogs slow to catch especially in those akin to us the finer qualities of soul we misunderstood you misappreciated you and we own up to it and now alas my dear friends i would strike in here waving towards them an ascetic hand one of the emaciated sort that lets the light shine through at the finger-tips alas you come too late this conduct is fitting and meritorious on your part and indeed i always expected it of you sooner or later but the die is cast and you may go home again and bewail at your leisure this too tardy repentance of yours for me i am vowed and dedicated and my relations henceforth are austerity and holy works once a month should you wish it it shall be your privilege to come and gaze at me through this very solid grating but whack a well-aimed clod of garden soil whizzing just past my ear starred on a tree trunk behind spattering me with dirt the present came back to me in a flash, and I nimbly took cover behind the trees, realizing that the enemy was up and abroad with ambuscades, alarms, and thrilling sallies. It was the gardener's boy I knew well enough. 
a red proletariat who hated me just because I was a gentleman. Hastily picking up a nice sticky clod in one hand, with the other I delicately projected my hat beyond the shelter of the tree-trunk. I had not fought with redskins all these years for nothing. As I had expected, another clod, of the first class for size and stickiness, took my poor hat full in the centre. Then, Ajax-like, shouting terribly, I issued from shelter and discharged my ammunition. Woe, then, for the gardener's boy, who, unprepared, skipping in premature triumph, took the clod full in his stomach. He, the foolish one, witless, on whose side the gods were fighting that day, discharged yet other missiles, wavering and wide of the mark, for his wind had been taken with the first clod, and he shot wildly as one already desperate and in flight. I got another clod in at short range. We clinched on the brow of the hill and rolled down to the bottom together. When he had shaken himself free and regained his legs, he trotted smartly off in the direction of his mother's cottage. But over his shoulder he discharged at me both imprecation and deprecation, menace mixed up with an undercurrent of tears. But as for me, I made off smartly for the road, my frame tingling, my head high, with never a backward look at the settlement of suggestive aspect, or at my well-planned future, which lay in fragments around it. Life had its jollities, then. Life was action, contest, victory. The present was rosy once more, surprises lurked on every side, and I was beginning to feel villainously hungry. Just as I gained the road, a cart came rattling by, and I rushed for it, caught the chain that hung below, and swung thrillingly between the dizzy wheels, choked and blinded with delicious-smelling dust, the world slipping by me like a streaky ribbon below, till the driver licked at me with his whip, and I had to descend to earth again. Abandoning the beaten track, I then struck homewards through the fields. Not that the way was very much shorter, but rather because on that route one avoided the bridge and had to splash through the stream and get refreshingly wet. Bridges were made for narrow folk, for people with aims and vocations which compelled abandonment of many of life's highest pleasures. Truly wise men called on each element alike to minister to their joy, and while the touch of sun-bathed air, the fragrance of garden soil, the ductible qualities of mud, and the spark-whirling rapture of playing with fire, had each their special charm, they did not overlook the bliss of getting their feet wet. As I came forth on the common, Harold broke out of an adjoining copse and ran to meet me the morning rain-clouds all blown away from his face. He had made a new squirrel-stick, it seemed, made it all himself, melted the lead and everything. I examined the instrument critically, and pronounced it absolutely magnificent. 
As we passed in at our gate, the girls were distantly visible, gardening with a zeal in cheerful contrast to their heartsick lassitude of the morning. "'There's been another ladder come to-day,' Harold explained, "'and the hamper got juggled about on the journey, "'and the presents worked down into the straw and all over the place. "'One of them turned up inside the cold duck, "'and that's why they weren't found at first, "'and Edward said thanks awfully.' "'I did not see Martha again "'until we were all reassembled at tea-time, when she seemed red-eyed and strangely silent, neither scolding nor finding fault with anything. Instead, she was very kind and thoughtful with jams and things, feverishly pressing unwanted delicacies on us, who wanted little pressing enough. Then suddenly, when I was busiest, she disappeared, and Charlotte whispered me presently, that she had heard her go to her room and lock herself in. This struck me as a funny sort of proceeding. End of number two of Dream Days by Kenneth Graham